Hello. Hi, everyone. Yeah. Hi. Yeah, I think it's five past, so we should uh, get going. Um, so thanks for joining us for this uh, final lecture of the Cutting Edge series for this semester. Um, I... Oh, yeah, sorry. Well, sorry, it's not the, the final one. There is another one next week. Um, my mistake. Well, I'm Tin Al-Kadi. I'm, I'm a PhD student in the International Development Department. My uh, research looks at the globalization of China's internet industry, and I more specifically look at Chinese digital investments in North Africa. Uh, my supervisors are Professor James Fuzzell and Laura Mann. Um, so I'm really excited about the, this panel today because it's very much linked to, to, to my research. And it's with great pleasure that I welcome our guests uh, for this session on China's Belt and Road Initiative, uh, Development Finance and Investment in Africa. So discussing Chinese um, financing and investment abroad is particularly timely this year as the Belt and Road Initiative celebrates its 10-year anniversary. Um, big questions emerge from, you know, ch the, like China's globalization and its presence in other developing countries. Uh, it's important to ask whether Chinese, you know, financing to African countries is a form of debt trap, as we often read on media headlines. But, you know, it's important to ask whether it, it's more complicated than that. And for, for you here, uh, postgraduate students in development, uh, it's very important to ask whether China's engagement with Africa is contributing to, to structural change or not. And uh, I, I will let our fantastic panel help us answer some of these very important questions. Um, so let me start by um, introducing uh, our speakers. So I'm going to go uh, from the left to, to the right. So first, uh, I'm happy to welcome uh, Yunnan Chan. So Yunnan is a research fellow in uh, ODI's Development and Public Finance Program. Her work centers on the changing development finance architecture and the role of global China. She holds a specialist interest in the role of Chinese development finance. She was previously working uh, for the China Africa Initiative at John Hopkins University, and she has published widely in academic journals and policy briefings. Next to her, we have Dr. Weiwei Chan. So Weiwei is a postdoctoral researcher at the Open University. Weiwei's academic interests include the globalization of Chinese firms and Chinese private foreign direct investment in sub-Saharan Africa. She has been conducting fieldwork in both Angola and Ethiopia since 2015. And uh, she surveyed an impressive range of uh, Chinese firms in light manufacturing, but also in the construction sector. She holds a PhD from SOAS, and her research outputs have been disseminated in several policy and academic publications. Last but not least, um, there's Dr. Uh, Kiyu Jin, who's an associate professor of economics at the LSE. Um, she researches and teaches international macroeconomics and the Chinese economy. She is the author of the New China Playbook, Beyond Socialism and Capitalism. Uh, and her academic papers have been published in top economic journals, such as the American Economic Review. 
She previously sat on the editorial board of the Review of Economic Studies and is currently an academic member of the policy think tank China Finance 40. Jin has a PhD from Harvard University and has previously taught at Yale, Berkeley, and Tsinghua University. Okay, I will stop here. And uh, yeah, without further ado, I'll ask um, Yunnan to uh, kick things off. Okay, uh, can you all hear me? Um, so it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much um, to the team at LSE for, for inviting me. Uh, and my presentation to kick off this um, the seminar will focus kind of on the state side of things uh, and China's state-backed development, or if you want to call it development finance in, in Africa. Um, and this will go through a, a mostly descriptive landscape of who are the key development actors, what have been the patterns and focus of financing uh, in Africa, and then looking a little bit at the, the sort of the, the controversial issues around Chinese debt in Africa. So what do we mean when we say development finance? And I think the first thing to, to, to put on the table is that China's overseas financing has been a, a fundamental challenge to OECD and traditional donor understandings of, of, of development finance, of aid, uh, and of official finance. There is a very different model and conception on the relationship between aid uh, and trade finance in the Chinese system. And we have a very different kind of institutional setup as well between uh, the, the institutions involved in providing Chinese aid and providing different kinds of uh, official finance. That, and all of these contrast um, the, the kind of established OECD model of aid and development finance that have evolved and culminated uh, or, or, or let's see, cohered in the last um, 50 years or so. China has chosen not to assimilate into a lot of these regimes. And, and here I'm specifically talking about uh, certain normative frameworks around the OECD arrangement that governs export credits and the use of official finance to support domestic uh, exporters and trade, the uh, OECD DAC, the Development Assistance Committee, and norms around untying aid, as well as the, the Paris Club, which governs debt restructuring. All of these frameworks or, or rules were established before China really became a major player in this field. Uh, and, and so I think there is a sense that as a slight latecomer to the game, it doesn't want to sit down at the table where the dishes have already been prepared or the rules have already been laid out. Um, there are other things where Chinese finance has also been kind of criticized for where it stands quite in contrast to, to you know, traditional donors. Um, and this relates to issues such as ESG, uh, approach to, to uh, labor, to environmental impacts or social assessment. And on this, you know, I think some of that comes from Chinese creditors being relatively young and, uh, and newer to the scene. Um, but also they're very streamlined, right? And, and this has also been, a, a, let's say, an advantage of 
Chinese lenders and Chinese credit for developing countries in that Chinese financing is very, very fast. Another criticism is that Chinese finance comes with no strings attached, right? they, and that this has um, uh, contributed to issues of governance of, or poor governance and corruption. And this is true to an extent that uh, you know, Chinese loans don't come with the same kinds of policy conditionalities that the World Bank might require or that um, loans from, from OECD donors might require. But that's not to say that Chinese loans are not conditional. They do, in fact, have very clear policy conditionalities. And the biggest one is that you have to break diplomatic relations with Taiwan and recognize only one China, uh, as in China, as in Beijing uh, and the People's Republic of China. Um, moving on, I'm going to uh, pull a, a slightly complicated looking diagram that shows the, the sort of the spectrum of actors and institutions involved in uh, China's overseas finance um, via the Belt and Road Initiative and beyond that. Whereas, uh, for example, I mean, pre-merger, uh, UK aid primarily came from one single development agency. At that time, it was DFID. Now it's FCDO. Uh, China's overseas aid and finance is spread over uh, a much broader range of uh, institutions, both political actors and uh, financial institutions, and so. You know, all of these fall under the governance of, of the, the top level of leadership under the State Council and the, and the Foreign Affairs Committee. And then at the bottom, where it goes is to support contractors, uh, project owners on the ground. And, and there are different kinds of financial instruments, right, that we're talking about. So when we talk about Chinese aid, this is really a very, very small subset of total official finance. Um, and this comprises of zero interest loans, grants, which usually involve in-kind donations. And the biggest bulk of this are concessional loans, which come from China Exim Bank. You have uh, what would be classified as other official finance in OECD terms, which is financing that comes from an official uh, institution, but is not concessional. And the two major providers uh, of, of, of uh, official finance are the two policy banks, Exim Bank in the middle uh, and, and CDB. Uh, and then you have um, commercial finance, which come from uh, CDB, which, which provides loans only at um, commercial rates, as well as uh, relatively newer players in the Belt and Road Initiative, um, such as ICBC or Bank of China, which are two of what are called the, the big four uh, state-owned, but uh, commercial um, commercial banking institutions. Of these, the ones that you'll probably have heard of or seen the most are China Exim Bank and CDB. China Exim Bank is the, let's say, more state-adjacent institution. It's the most clear kind of policy bank. It is the provider of, and the sole provider of concessional loans, so it has a direct funding relationship from China's foreign aid budget. It's also been the one that's been the public face of Chinese um, debt renegotiations in the, in the uh, ongoing G20 uh, common framework. Um, and it's also been the one that's most active 
in the African continent. Uh, CDB, meanwhile, is a little bit more of a hybrid institution. It is technically a policy bank, but seems to behave uh, a lot more as a commercial lender. Um, and it's the one that's been more active in, in Latin America. And then to the right and the far right, uh, something that I've been working on as well, is, uh, is the role of Sinoshore, which is less visible than the others, but it is also an export credit agency, and it's the one that's responsible for insuring or underwriting a lot of these commercial transactions overseas. Uh, and Sinoshore has been quite critical in, uh, in a lot of the, the major flagship Belt and Road Initiative projects. So when we dive into the patterns of, of China's lending in Africa, um, you'll see that you know, Africa is not a monolith in terms of Chinese interests, and in fact is extremely concentrated in a small number of countries. Um, primarily Angola. Uh, and this is a, a long relationship, and I know Weiwei is gonna talk about this in a lot more detail. Uh, Angola has been the, the largest recipient of, of Chinese loans, a lot of which date back into the early 2000s where Chinese lending was instrumental in the post-civil conflict uh, reconstruction of Angolan infrastructure. Um, Angola was also a very important trade partner in supplying uh, oil and, uh, as a commodity exporter to China in that period. Um, but after Angola, you also have other non resource exporters, Ethiopia, Kenya, for example, who have also been uh, major recipients of Chinese lending, um, particularly in hard economic infrastructure sectors. Uh, and as you can see on the right, energy and transport are the two biggest sectors in terms of projects that have received Chinese lending. Um, what does this look like on the ground? Well, it, it reflects uh, very coincidentally the sectors and uh, industries where Chinese contractors and construction firms have a competitive or a comparative advantage. Uh, hydropower, railways, these are all things that contractors in China at home are very, very good at constructing um, and coincidentally end up becoming a very strategic pillar of China's going out, uh, particularly in the years after the global financial crisis. But <clears throat> these projects also, I think, it's important to say they, they coincide with the development strategies and demands of African governments and, and governments of the global south in their own, um, let's say, wish lists for investment. Right? These, are, these are sectors where MDBs, such as the World Bank and traditional donors, for the last decades, have really retreated from. Right? In the early 2000s, the World Bank really wasn't funding very much in the way of hydropower or, or railways anymore, uh, and had shifted a lot, uh, had shifted away from, from hard infrastructure towards sort of softer programs. And so the rise of Chinese lending in this period, I think, also filled um, a much needed, uh, uh, it, it provided a much needed resource and, and filled an important financing gap uh, when it comes to this kind of hard, productive economic infrastructure. When we look at patterns of lending over time, uh, you see certain very clear kind of booms and, and busts, right? Uh, in the early 2000s, there's this, there's this very slow uh, uptick, um, very much driven by, um, by, by Chinese patterns of, of trade demand in this period. Uh, where we see a lot of lending to, to resource-rich countries, and so these loans were also backed by 
resources as collateral. But, but really when we see China become a big player as a creditor is, is in the years uh, after the, the financial crisis. And, and this is what becomes known as the Belt and Road Initiative, but that boom in lending begins before the BRI or One Belt, One Road uh, really becomes uh, a thing. And, and this is a, I would say, a spillover right, of what's happening at home. In the years following the global financial crisis, China invests massively in domestic economic infrastructure. You have a huge stimulus to support uh, hard, um, hard industries, heavy industries. And then you reach a, a point of a very saturated infrastructure market, excess capacity, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and conveniently, uh, a lot of companies decide to go overseas. And you see a capitalization of the policy banks and major financial institutions who are then enabled to support these companies to go out. 2013 is, uh, if you ignore the spike in 2016, 2013 is really the peak of, of Chinese lending to Africa. Um, this 2016 spike is basically all Angola and it's one framework agreement between CDB and Angola. But, but the broader trend is that basically at the second half of the decade of the 2010s, uh, Chinese lending to Africa has been in a phase of slowdown. And this is reflected more broadly when we look at uh, global lending patterns. So, so this, this is um, from BU's data set of China's overseas official lending across the world. Uh, and you see the same pattern. Again, 2016 is, a, is an anomalous spike, which is basically explained by Angola. But, but there's a secular shift right, in, the, in the post, let's say, 2015 era. Um, and a lot of that is explained by domestic factors, where you see a, um, a shift in the regulatory environment, um, greater regulatory pressures on both the policy banks and, and more broadly in the financial sector. You also see a lot more international backlash and criticism of the BRI and a lot of the projects that, that were initiated in that early phase of exuberance start to come online and start to face a lot more kind of teething problems. Um, and, and there's a little bit of a shift in narrative, particularly after COVID. Uh, the, the, the BRI in recent years has had a little bit of a deprofiling when it comes to mentions in official rhetoric uh, there's been the announcement of newer initiatives, including the Global Development Initiative, alongside the Global Security Initiative, Global Civilization Initiative. So, so the BRI is no longer the only acronym in town, let's say. Uh, but that said, uh, the BRI is, is not dead. And with the forum in October of 2023, um, we're also seeing a, a little bit of a, of a revival uh, in, in terms of uh, political commitment to the Belt and Road Initiative and in terms of the, the funding windows that have been created at the, at the policy banks. Um, uh, and this is a point on another kind of secular uh, shift to mention is that you know, whilst we are seeing a a little bit of a revival and, and potentially an uptick in the years to come in terms of lending, I think there has been a bit of a transformation in terms of the, the risk attitudes and approaches to risk from Chinese creditors. Um, and one component of that is, is the willingness of uh, Sinoshore, the major export credit agency that 
that ensures a lot of this overseas investment and lending and their willingness to, to underwrite, uh, underwrite some of these long-term, long-horizon um, debt-financed projects. Um, there is a bit of a question over how much uh, moral hazard uh, Sinoshore has, has generated over the years where, you know, when you have a project that, that uh, is ultimately guaranteed by Sinoshore as a creditor, you can feel a lot more comfortable to take on that risk because ultimately you're fulfilling your mandate. Um, and, and so ultimately, um, I think we are seeing, we are seeing a, a little bit of um, uh, a shift in approach. I am quickly running out of time. So I want to get very... I want to, to throw this at you to, to close the presentation, and that is kind of handling the myth of the debt trap, right? The, one of the biggest kind of controversies of China's overseas lending has been this, this idea that uh, China uses or strategically intends to leverage its overseas lending to in-debt borrower countries and therefore seize their strategic assets. And, and the, the main case of this has been the port of Hanbantota in Sri Lanka. Um, However, you know, and I won't have time to really get into the case, this is not in reality an asset seizure. The, the reality is, yes, Sri Lanka's government was, uh, was, was facing a lot of debt sustainability issues. However, this was debt not to China, it was debt to its private sector bondholders. And completely independent of the port project that happened to be constructed by a Chinese firm. It ended up being uh, a concession of the Chinese company because the Sri Lankan government invited the Chinese company to take it over and to take out some of the, the financial pressures that it was facing. And Sri Lanka is still, to this day, uh, trying to renegotiate its external debt, both to China but also primarily to its private sector creditors. But this myth has infected a lot of other projects across, uh, across Africa and other global south countries as well. So the Kenyan SGR, uh, Uganda and Tebe Airport, there have, there's, there's been a lot of kind of media uh, hyperbole and hand-wringing over, uh, over whether or not these projects would be taken over by Chinese creditors or companies in the case of a default. And the reality is, no, we have really not seen any evidence of this. Uh, however, there is a genuine and very real problem of opacity when it comes to Chinese lending. It's very, very non-transparent. But when it comes to debt restructuring, uh, what we actually find is that Chinese creditors have been, in some cases, very flexible, especially when there's a strategic bilateral relationship at play. Uh, and in recent years, China has joined um, new multilateral debt restructuring initiatives. Um, and so at the top line, it is trying to play ball at a political level. However, at the implementation level, um, this has also been a lot more problematic and I'm happy to discuss this in the Q&A. Um, and, and I'll just conclude there because I'm running out of time. But uh, this is a, another figure from, from Boston University which kind of illustrates when we talk about debt, where the scale of the problem is. Uh, China, as you can see, is there. It is the largest official sector creditor, but but there are bigger problems at play. All right, and I'll conclude there. Thank you. Yep. Hello, everyone. It's my pleasure to be presented here. Um, just want to follow by Yunnan, and I want to focus more on um, sharing insights about Chinese 
investment in African countries, but particularly about Chinese foreign direct investment, based on my um, past uh, eight years ground-based research, in particularly in Angola, Ethiopia. Um, firstly, I want to provide an overall picture about the Chinese FDI to Africa. Um, it is evident to see that Chinese FDI um, has um, demonstrated a significant growth over the past two decades, um, increasing from 75 million US dollar in 2003 to um, 5 billion US dollar in 2021. And since 2013, um, the investment to Africa from China has existed as those from the US. A, tr a trend can be seen that emphasized by the general decline um, in US FDI um, during the post-2000 uh, period. In this sense, Chinese FDI to Africa is fairly big, but it also uh, Chinese FDI to Africa also presents a paradoxical picture in the sense that it's also quite small in terms of the overall proportion among Chinese total investment abroad. Um, by 2021, its investment in terms of um, investment stock to Af Africa is just 1.59% of the total investment. So it's fairly small in this sense. Um, in terms of the top recipient of Chinese FDI, um, by 2021, um, DRC, Zambia, Guinea, South Africa, and Kenya have become the, the top recipients. Um, Angola and Ethiopia used to be a top recipient back to 2015-17, um, but has been dropped from the top 10. Um, you can see there is a strategic shift in Chinese investment towards region, not traditionally targeted by Western investors, as has been um, um, updated to 2021. The data shows that um, the top sectors, including construction, manufacturing, especially um, among those countries that are not targeted by Western countries, such as Ethiopia, um, in manufacturing sector, especially the light manufacturing sector. Now I want to move on to um, the second point, which are the key challenges for us to studying Chinese FDI to Africa. Basically, um, whenever you read about media reports, newspaper, those kind of common perception regarding Chinese engagement in Africa in the form of foreign direct investment always show somehow um, one-dimensional bias picture. People do not distinguish between state-owned enterprises or private-owned enterprises, which all lump together as Chinese. Um, this kind of problem uh, we also refer to methodological nationalism, whereby the origin of a firm or agency determines the outcome has two significant drawbacks. The first one is that it conceals highly significant heterogeneity of Chinese actors overseas and ignores the variety of Chinese capital. Um, in terms of variety of Chinese capital, it's not only about state-owned or private-owned, but also variation within each group of firms. And secondly, it also ignores the importance of the context of African countries that host overseas investment, um, as African state and the society were not able to shape how foreign actors and firms operate in their countries. In reality, it's not always the case. It has been demonstrated, at least from, for instance, in Ethiopia, at least the Ethiopian government can force, for instance, the Chinese FDI um, investment um, from previously focused on Ethiopian domestic manufacturing in like a light textile garment industry to focus on export to the US and the European market. Um, 
So the second problem encountered from um, in terms of challenger is the data issues. Um, sometimes when we're researching about Chinese FDI, we look about the database and look about secondary data. If we have limited resources, uh, we cannot go to the field. But always, um, sometimes they have to uh, overrely on the limited database can lead to misrepresentation. Because sometimes you take it for granted and some database mixed investment, Chinese foreign investment and the contract and put them all together that uh, lead to a very um, misleading uh, picture. And secondly, some of the official, uh, official statistics can be misleading in terms of the uh, geographical sectoral distribution. For instance, um, the um, database I have collected from the field in Ethiopia shows that many of Chinese firms originally from um, Zhejiang province, they also brought their own capital somehow sometimes from tax haven, from their um, internal taxing networks to invest in Africa, but not officially registered in the um, MOFCOM data in China. So, um, solely rely on those kind of secondary data and, uh, and didn't check the composition of the database, how they collect the data can um, sometimes lead to a very misleading picture. So how we try to mitigate this kind of problem collectively, um, recently, um, in recent years, Professor Ching Kuan Li also um, um, called for the concept of global China, try to understand of China beyond Chinese borders. And to, um, in our, um, in the team that I'm working on right now from, uh, led by Professor Giles Mohan in, at Open University, focus on the um, in, um, dynamics and efforts of Chinese infrastructure investment in Europe. Our team also called to productively engage between the concept of global development and global China. To, so in doing so, we can try to avoid the so-called uh, methodological nationalism or Chinese exceptionalism. So what we need to do is to think in terms of a capitalist whole rather than Chinese exceptionalism, varieties of uh, capitalism or micro-level geographical outcomes. And secondly, we need to disaggregate the state and the capital both in home country and the host country. And the factors matter in relational agency. Fourthly, is the ideas and interests are co-determinated. So in terms of data collection, we also call for more rigorous ground-based comparative analysis to um, either prove or disprove this kind of uh, existing data. You really need to triangulate different data to see whether it's the validity of it. So how we do so? In a recent paper, me and Professor Carlos Oya from SOAS University Actually, he's my former PhD supervisor. We write a paper on the heterogeneity and adaptation of Chinese FDI in Africa, um, evidence from Angola, Ethiopia. So in our paper, we focus based on the data we collect from 2015 from two ESRC different um, projects that we did in the field. And combined with my PhD thesis on Chinese private investment in Ethiopia with one year comparative, uh, comparative ethnographic study in the field. And then we updated the data with the interviewees up till um, May 2023. Um, I just want to, uh, to provide some of the insight because it's quite relevant to today's uh, topic. So 
what's the driver? What, what's the driver of Chinese investment to Africa? Why are Chinese firms investing in Africa? So in order to understand the driver, we need to know who are those actors? Who are those investors? Where are they from? And, and how they overcome this kind of initial difficulty to make the decision and also um, to install um, their in investment in the underground. So in our paper, we argue that firstly, the main drivers of investment really depend on the variety of Chinese capital, state-owned enterprises, private-owned enterprises, and the variations among each group of firms. And equally important are the contextual fa factors in African countries, especially the role of the state, for instance, Ethiopia's industrial policy, contrast with um, Angola's infrastructure boom, for instance. Secondly, we also argue that heterogeneity among Chinese firms is very significant, driven by a combination of factors, such as sector specificity in the, in the sense of the particular market, either focused on domestic, host country domestic market or export market. If it's export market, whether it focuses on the European or US market or from the surrounding areas, because it has different kind of standards on environment, on the labor tra uh, training and the, the management workforce. And also, the prime mover is this for the market seeking, for um, um, profit seeking, for strategic asset seeking. What's the um, most important determinant of this individual investor to invest there? And then we look about, trace back about, okay, they are from China, but where are they from? Some of firms, for instance, in um, Ethiopia, we identify the majority, in terms of total number, majority firms are firstly from Zhejiang province then Jiangsu province and Guangdong province. And they have quite different kind of region-specific development model. Equally important is the Guanxi networks. Guanxi here means a, a kind of connection relationship. It's combined with personal business and social networks, but we also trace about which ties is the most important determinants to drive them to invest in particular sector and market. And then is the scale and the characteristic of owner and uh, or entrepreneur is essentially the case for private investors. And certainly, um, firms tend to adapt to the host country context in Africa, we argue, essentially private firms, with grab opportunity as they emerge. Adaptation has been seen in business management practices, labor regimes, and investment diversification. Um, if you want to know more, I can um, explain more in detail in the uh, Q&A session. And then I want to explain like what kind of type of firms we identify, we distinguish in, um, in, on the field. Firstly, it's like state-owned enterprises from central level, provincial level, and the municipal level. And we also identify certain kind of firms has mixed ownership enterprises, has certain um, share of the state uh, from the state, but mainly are private-owned. Um, meanwhile, we also identified diversified business groups. Um, that means certain kind of um, some firms they invest in more than three industry in the in host country has big financial muscle can maneuver the time. Even for instance, in Angola, they encountered the commodity crisis. Those kind of firms enable to. Um, being resilient to um, to act to those kind of shifting shifting condition and continue their businesses. And additionally, we also examine large, medium, private manufacturing firms connect to global production networks, such as uh, those in uh, in Ethiopia, particularly 
before the COVID pandemic, as well as medium small private firms and those kind of translocal who seek local market opportunities. So by highlighting these distinctions, we illustrate the differences in drive among those different type of firms and create a typology accordingly uh, in Angola, Ethiopia's manufacturing and construction sector and use the push and the pull framework um, to explore, okay, what are the key drivers of different type of firms' investment in Angola, Ethiopia, with a focus on sector-specific factor, both within and uh, between sectors. So, for example, in Ethiopia, we, we identified that uh, manufacturing sector ranked number one, followed by construction, real estate, machinery leasing, and consultancy. Why construction was not the first one? Because majority of the construction was through the contract rather than foreign direct investment. And sometimes we often mix them together and think, oh, they all Chinese investment, which is wrong when you really check on the ground. And in Angola, the majority FDI, unsurprisingly, was directed toward the oil sector. Um, according to Rwanda, um, um, manufacturing ranks third among non-oil investments, followed by uh, trade and construction. And the manufacturing sector in Angola and Ethiopia has shown quite distinct differences, resulting in significant variation among firms we sample. For instance, in Angola, the translocal are more prevalent um, in construction in all the sectors we sampled, but it's not the case in Ethiopia because the government of Ethiopia has really strict um, force, um, um, produced really strict restriction to foreign investors in, in particular industry. For instance, they only allowed firms um, invest since 2017 to focus on the export market in the light manufacturing industry. To conclude, I want to provide some of the implications for economic transformation in African countries from Chinese FDI there. Um, with a focus on manufacturing and infrastructure construction in Angola, Ethiopia, we try to argue that Chinese FDI has a potentially transformation effort in terms of job creation, technology transfer, uh, provide this kind of physical connectivity between the cont uh, continent with each, some of the um, African economies, as long as conditions do not substantially deteriorate, such as um, political stability, and the firms continue to adapt to challenges and new opportunities. However, we also um, argue that the potential impact of such investment really depends on the existence of coherent policy framework to manage foreign direct investment in the host countries. In this respect, the contrast Angola and Ethiopia is important and illustrative. That's end my um, speech. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I will not be no, uh, uh, using slides, but I've benefited greatly from two real experts on Belt and Road. So I'm going to come from a slightly different angle, first and foremost from uh, the role as a macroeconomist, which is my uh, field of expertise. Um, if we think about it for the first instance, you know, why China does uh, investment uh, outside of China, uh, let's go back to the basic equation, which is savings minus investment, and that's equal to the current account, right? And as we've all we've all known, China has ran a huge current account surplus, trade surplus, 
But what it does tell you is that if China saves more than it can possibly invest domestically, then that difference is capital flows abroad. Okay? And so in the period of the last 20 years or so, there's been a huge rise in Chinese saving, as we all know, and that's uh, uh, deemed to be a puzzle because despite the fact that income has grown more and more, Chinese people are saving more and more. The savings rate on average for a Chinese family was 35% as opposed to 2% in the US, and recently during the pandemic, it was as high as 50%. So as long as they save a lot, and that's driven by a number of structural factors, which we, we, we won't go into today, and they can't invest all domestically, that difference has to be exported abroad. And that's why we're seeing a substantial amount of net capital flows outside of China. And where do they go? Well, they go out all around the world, despite the hype about Belt and Road, and we've seen the numbers, um, only you know, less than 5% was going into countries like Africa. A lot of it actually came to the UK, to Europe, uh, even Heathrow Airport, I think, is partly funded by, by China. Now, we've got to also ask the question, how much of that will continue, right? Um, the savings boom, or some would call it the savings glut of developing countries in the last 20 years, um, with China as being one important part of it, was also one key factor driving down real interest rates, okay? And the, the low interest rate uh, uh, decade, more than decade, uh, has produced a number of effects and we're seeing the reversal of that kind of low interest rate decade going forward. We also want to ask, is this a good thing or a bad thing? There's been a lot of criticism about China's outward investment, but the truth of the matter is that it did help development to a large extent. And I'll come back to that. Uh, going forward with reduced savings capacity or with reduced, uh, let's say, current account surplus coming from China, uh, the reversal of the saving glut globally what we're going to see going forward is a rise in real interest rate, high real interest rate in the decade to come. And again, I'm not sure that um, will benefit to a great extent uh, developing countries. In fact, as we know, post-pandemic, um, developing countries are really uh, uh, suffering greatly from uh, high stress of indebtedness. And higher interest rate just simply means much more debt burdens and that will uh, become a, a significant factor for economic crises around the world. And that is something definitely to be concerned about. So that global saving availability or availability of capital, I think, um, was a very important characteristics of the last decades, but maybe not uh, in, in the future. And second, let's turn internally to China itself. Uh, China's economy is coming under strain, lowest growth in decade, the four, 40, last 40 years, high youth unemployment, and unbelievable amount of debt uh, in its own country. 345 trillion RMB of debt, um, numbers that are even higher than the US when you measure it against GDP, and a lot of it is local government debt. So with this kind of fiscal constraints, uh, you, you'd think that you know, there will be a lot more uh, resources diward, uh, directed inward rather than outward. And we talk about policy banks and commercial banks that has done a lot of this lending uh, outside of China. These are the same banks that are helping the local governments to resolve their debt issues and absorb the real estate debt or the various infrastructure uh, uh, debt uh, that has accumulated in China internally. So the, the second point is that China's internal challenges is definitely going to affect, affect um, its uh, uh, ability to invest abroad. Thirdly, uh, China's manufacturing hype, you know, 
that that was characterized also by a substantial amount of, let's say, oversupply of a lot of key uh, materials, manufacturing, solar panels, and steel, and so forth in the last decade. And strategically or economic, the, whether it's strategic or economic thinking, it made a lot of sense for these kind of developmental problems uh, from the Chinese perspective. On the one hand, I'm not saying that there weren't any strategic advantages to becoming uh, more present in African, Latin American countries uh, where you know, politically that was also important. But also, first and foremost, it was also driven by economic interest. It is true that there was something like $1 trillion of infrastru infrastructure gap per year around the world, and China was able to uh, at least um, uh, uh, finance part of it, but also export some of its overcapacity abroad to make use of this uh, accumulated expertise, efficiency, huge amount of efficiency and productive capability uh, to, to undertake these, uh, these projects. Uh, so these three factors really determined um, China's uh, outward uh, expansion, at least in this front. But I think we've come to a time where there are two things. There's reassessment and there's potential retrenchment. I've already talked about retrenchment uh, as a potential trend as China refocuses its resources domestically, as China uh, uh, kind of um, uh, 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 moves on from being a completely manufacturing-based economy to more high-tech, renewable, innovation-based uh, economy. Uh, that 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 kind of uh, um, uh, that kind of signals a retrenchment of capital, um, but there's also a reassessment. It's a learning curve, uh, as is with most things with the Chinese government. Uh, it's an experiment, uh, an experiment that's expanded or reduced over time, but a lot of learning that has gone uh, uh, that will uh, that will that will be uh, um, kind of derived. And one of it, which was also mentioned, is about risk. And I think there was not enough careful analysis about risks, uh, both on the Chinese investment side, but also on the borrower side, so creditors and uh, borrowers, and they are uh, reassessing this impact um, uh, or, or reassessing how to better manage the risks. Um, uh, I think that um, you know, there's a trend towards uh, redirection towards renewable energy investment. And you know, this, the beauty about this project is that it can be spun in different directions and all makes sense according to what's really important. And right now it's about green tech, climate tech, and, and renewables. And of course, China also has an advantage uh, in terms of its uh, renewable development, one of the leaders in the world. Um, and uh, Belt and Road Initiative going to take more green actions, be more considerate towards the uh, environment. Um, again, in the recent uh, 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 kind of gathering convention, there was an emphasis on how to deal with corruption and how to deal with corrupt, more corrupt economies, and all of that is part of the learning curve. There's a new emphasis on smaller projects. Um, uh, uh, small but beautiful is the kind of slogan uh, uh, for Belt and Road. Uh, and if you look at systematic evidence uh, on data, of course, these, these two are the experts here, but from what I've read, uh, there is you know, uh, an improvement in terms of the quality of investment, in terms of the kind of um, projects they engage in, the kind of countries they can get engage in, in terms of the corruption index, improving along those lines, um, and also a shift from uh, a working with the state actors to more moving uh, towards uh, working with the private sector. So all that has changed significantly over the last 10 years, but has not, des has not met with the, the warranted kind of um, attention and acknowledgement that these things uh, have changed. Um, then there are the per 
positive externalities, right? Uh, just taking Africa alone, when you're talking about 10,000 km, 10, kilometers of railway, 100,000 kilometers of highway, more than 1,000 bridges, 100 ports, along with power plants, hospitals, and schools, um, you know, these are really significant things for, 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 for development. And here I'm just mentioning a few, not to mention the, you know, the renewables and hydropower plants and all these things for water and electricity. And the fact that according to data, you know, we've seen that this is not just concentrated on resources, but on, uh, on uh, uh, you know, broad services, manufacturing, even finance and real estate. So a broad representation of, of sectors. It's totally misrepresented in the headline news as if it's only a one-way street. And you know, in, in this day and age, you don't sign up for one-way uh, uh, returns, but it's a mutually, potentially mutually beneficial um, a project with the caveat that some of the risks might be underestimated. In fact, in Sri Lanka, we talked about this case, but Sri Lanka had a terrible COVID uh, 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 you know, crisis with the lack of tourism and its internal economic challenges was one really important reason why some of uh, some of these, um, well, and, and overall debt, indebtedness uh, was a driver behind some of these these episodes. It's also fair to say that uh, when you work with African nations, you know, it's not possible to take care of the entire economic ecosystem. Yes, you build roads and highways, but, you know, who provides the jobs and the, I mean, broadly speaking, right, uh, 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 you know, some of the African people would say, yes, we have great roads and highways, but we don't have the jobs, we don't have food on our table. And you know, it's it's not really necessarily. Um, yes, these kind of projects provide certain kind of jobs, but the economy has to get going uh, before this infrastructure can be fully maximized to its potential. But at the same time, China's own experience is that this kind of infrastructure network really also enables China to grow much faster because of the connectivity. Uh, and, and we've seen China has the most efficient global uh, supply chain in the world, and a lot of it has to do with this great infrastructure. But it's a chicken and egg problem, and China won't be able to help uh, to solve some of the general economic developmental questions, uh, problems for these these countries. Um, so, uh, you know, it's also so coming back to the debt issue. Uh, China accounts for 17% of Africa's total external debt, right? And that's significantly lower than Western countries. We've seen some of these numbers in the previous presentations. Um, most of the loans uh, provide funds for African countries to build infrastructure, promote economic growth through trade, and filling some of the financing gaps that Western countries are often have often been unwilling uh, to address. Um, and the majority of the lending, so uh, let's say a study released by the UK uh, um, uh, in July revealed that African countries owe three times more to Western private lending institutions than they do to China. The majority of external debt owed by emerging markets is to Western institutions, financial institutions. And um, we've seen throughout history, right, sovereign debt crises, um, repeated cycles, serial defaults. That had nothing to do with China's arrival. It was in the last, you know, as, as long as capital markets were internationalized since the 1990s, there have been these crises throughout history in virtually all emerging markets and developing countries. And again, that had nothing to do with uh, China's arrival. So these are driven by a variety of factors um, that are primarily internal uh, rather than externally driven. So we have to keep that in mind. At the same time, I think it's also part of a learning curve as, as to how to be 
a creditor to emerging uh, countries. And uh, in 2022, Chinese government announced um, debt forgiveness of 23 interest-free loans to some developing countries, and additionally canceled over $3.4 billion in debt uh, in the last 10 years, and, and then some, some more for other developing countries. And I should also mention that the interest rate on these loans are significantly lower than the, in, the loans offered by Western private uh, institutions, right, and so forth. Now, the question of uh, China's participation in the Paris Club, or lack of participation in the Paris Club, or this kind of international coordination of, of these debt issues in developing countries, I do think it is an important topic. And let me just try to pre pre present a different side of the story, apart from the one that we usually listen to, which is China's not coordinating with the Western countries to deal with the debt problems uh, in the developing countries, and that is China not acting as a global player. Um, first and foremost, I do think that this set of questions will be very important, especially going forward. As I mentioned, one big major risk factor is the developing country's sovereign debt or debt crises uh, coming forth because of the post-COVID recovery and because of rising interest rates. It will be very, very significant. And of course, China is one of the largest official creditors to developing countries. But the other side of the story has to be told, and this side of the story is coming from the uh, perspective of developing countries and emerging uh, countries. First of all, the Paris Club was founded by a handful of Western nations, and it, it basically is designed based on rules of the past uh, century rather than updated to suit the market conditions of today. And it does come with a lot of uh, foreign lending or Western lending does come with a lot of uh, uh, strings attached. We, we mentioned no strings attached from, from China, but the truth of the matter is that IMF kind of lending institutions conditionality is sometimes inconsistent with these developing countries' goals and uh, and, and and needs, and they, therefore they shun some of these uh, uh, you know participation from uh, international uh, institutions. Um, first of all, um, they believe China believes the Paris Club is somewhat outdated. It has to be more tailor-made. It has to be uh, more attention has to be paid to economic and market realities. Uh, for example, uh, China believes that some of these uh, short-term uh, challenges are really cyclical. You know, for instance, if they can't repay uh, in the short run, uh, if China helps them get over that short period, then they will be sustainable or can be repaid over the long run. That not, might not be uh, what the other Western institutions think. They think, okay, it has to be a haircut, it has to be you know, completely resolved instantly. And that could affect uh, these countries' uh, um, uh, uh, sorry, um, capacity to access foreign uh, uh, markets, uh, investment markets in the future. And China doesn't believe in necessarily this method or that method, but potentially to weather some of the short-term cyclical factors to be able to have longer-term, lower interest, uh, sustainable investments. Um, uh, so it's it believes that the right approach is often to offer fresh loans at lower cost to help them you know, weather the temporary storm, uh, but then that's not how the Paris Club believes, it thinks that's the right thing to do. And being constrained by these conditions and tight fiscal conditions would actually be bad for growth for these developing countries. Again, there is a misalignment of, of, of you know, approach in terms of how to deal with developing countries. And so China's position is that times have changed, we need a new architecture, a lot of it, you know, maybe with, according to new developments, there needs to be more private sector uh, engagement. The private sector should also play a role in setting the rules of the game uh, and so forth. So what is fair um, 
uh, depends on whose perspective you're talking about. Uh, so uh, uh, a lot of these, you know, anyway, I'm not going to go into this, but a lot of these de debt cancellations could disproportionately fall on the burden of one country versus another versus the Paris Club. So there's a lot of uh, fair issues to be debated. And I think so there's a lot of complexity behind uh, this increasingly, um, you know, also complex uh, financial architecture where China and other developing countries would want to play a bigger role and would also want to have a, a bigger say. Uh, so I think um, that pretty much summarizes my conclusion. I just end with the fact that, you know, I think China's challenge is overwhelmingly internal, uh, and that would be the primordial focus going on. But that said, uh, at least we, we've seen the dip in the uh, FDI to Africa, but at least compared to last year, there, I think there was a 4.4% growth in FDI to, to, to Africa uh, year on year. But I think it's a constant learning curve. And as I mentioned, when the current account surplus shrinks, uh, by definition, by accounting, the amount of net capital flows going from China to the rest of the world will reduce. And I'm not really sure that that would be overall a really good thing for, for economic development. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much for this um, like genuinely fascinating set of presentations. I'm sure that it gave rise to a lot of questions in the audience. Um, so, so yeah, we have about an hour for, for questions. So um, who wants to start? I, I see, yeah, lots of hands up. Okay, maybe we should take three questions at once. Um, let's start with the gentleman here and then you and Thank you. Uh, my question is to Professor Jin uh, about the Chinese economy. And if you see the past Chinese econ uh, economic growth pattern, mm -hmm. the high economic growth rate is accompanied by a really low CPI and comparatively high unemployment rate. And uh, this, this serious issue has been more just like horrible and obvious uh, nowadays, if you see the figures. So my question is, how do you examine this confusing relationship between economic growth rate, unemployment, and inflation? And what is the potential cost of it? Thank you. Hello, thank you for your interesting talk. My question is about how China's engagement in Africa differs from its engagement in Central Asia and the Middle East. Are there any key areas of contrast or overarching similarities in China's approaches to these regions? Hi there. Um, I've just got a general question to, to all of you about the strings attached to China's foreign investment. So it seems that in general it's less strings attached, less ideological and political, political conditionalities. Is this a good thing in that it gives countries more policy space and freedom to do things on their own terms? Or should things like democratic governance be required? Thank you so much. I'm a Chilling Scholar from Kazakhstan. My name is Ra Rafael. I have a quick question. So 
considering the geopolitical uh, escalation and uh, the savings rates in China, to what extent China is trying to diversify and stay away from buying U.S. debt? And to what extent uh, the exodus of China from European and American markets, I mean technological exodus like Huawei, and China is trying to support its domestic manufacturing in developing countries. In the Financial Times, there was an article that said that the exports, that the Chinese export to developing countries now are higher than to uh, the developed mar markets. Thank you. Okay. Um, so on the Chinese economy, uh, I'm not sure there's a contradiction here in the sense that uh, it's suffering from a severe lack of demand. So when you have lack of demand, inflation is relatively low, potentially deflationary, and then also you know high unemployment and low growth. And that's what that the, the situation is today. The question is, um, are there policies to, to get out of this demand uh, trap? And there are, but the question is, why is the government not unleashing a series of Western-style, Keynesian-style, helicopter-drafting uh, kind of policies? And that has a lot to do with its own preferences for, um, or its own conviction that uh, to get you know uh, to get people to spend, you need sustainable income growth. Uh, that is longer term rather than a short term kind of helicopter kind of solution. I'm not sure that's correct. I'm not sure I agree with that, but that's kind of the thinking and the fact that you need a massive stimulus to have really any effect on the Chinese economy today uh, added to the fact is that they have a lot of fiscal constraints because of the debt is probably the reason why we're not seeing huge policy. But in terms of the economy itself and low inflation, it's consistent with the fact that you know, unlike US and Europe, which had a massive um, uh, stimulus package for households. Uh, China had a very long post, uh, did not have the rebound spending that we've seen uh, in this part of the world. And then I'll just pick up on um, kind of uh, uh, the US uh, debt uh, issue. Can't even read my own handwriting, but uh, I'll try to remember the question. Um, yes, it's, it's already uh, reduced uh, the, the, the purchases of, of treasuries, as we've seen, and that's actually going to be another reason why we're not going to see low interest rate, you know, a low real interest rate going forward. And of course, if you have higher, you know, a real interest rate, nominal interest rate, obviously, will, be, will have to be higher as well. We've seen a diversification away from U.S. Treasury debt, and that's significant implications on the global market. Yes, it is intentional in some ways. I think lots, you know, they want to diversify away from the dollar, but also diversify in general. Diversification means uh, uh, that. Um, yeah, let me let me let me pass it on to the other. Um, yeah, I try to answer partially the second question. Um, actually, I'm not very sure about the Middle East because I haven't done research about it, but I, I think you really need to look about the, firstly about the whole picture, what the most um, prominent investment in terms of the different sector. You need to look about sector distribution in the continent, then look about the, or region, and then look about um, the geographical uh, distribution of the, uh, the investment, and then look about the what type of Chinese firms are there? Are they state-owned enterprises or in what sector? You have to look about the scale and uh, the sector uh, and within the sector. Um, 
but I, I, I think I have limited knowledge about this, but this is something I think whenever you look about the different region, you first have to look about what are the prominent investment um, in there in terms of sector distribution and, and, and the type of them. Um, and the, the fourth question I can partially um, under, uh, answer because I'm doing a research funded by European Research Council right now about Chinese uh, infrastructure investment in Europe. There's a project start from 2020 and focus about the dynamics and efforts of Chinese investment in Europe. Focus on, we, we select four countries, Germany, um, UK, and uh, Greece, and uh, Hungary. Two countries when we were selected, it was kind of pro-China, that uh, um, Greece and uh, Hungary, while another two are kind of holding a neutral position attitude at that time. But slowly, you can see that becoming um, increasingly cold. That was Germany and the UK. Um, so um, when we look about, so what kind of uh, projects are more prominent in those four countries um, in terms of infrastructure projects, then we found that in Germany, um, it's a more high-tech, those kind of in investments through merge acquisition. So Chinese investment really have different kind of drivers and modality to invest different countries in European continent, for instance. Like Huawei, Xiaomi, they have been there for a while. Um, and, and while in um, UK, it's quite interesting to see these are more brownfield uh, investment. It's more focused about regeneration project, about enterprises zone. One is in um, uh, London's Royal Albert Dock, and another one in Manchester, it's called Manchester Airport City. That's uh, two case study actually I'm leading. Um, so we'll have the more, uh, more pro, uh, findings later next year. Um, so it really depends on the different countries focus and also the host country context, like what's the priority for the host country, countries, uh, states and the society and what they have been driven to engage with Chinese investment. In Hungary, it's more like Huawei's logistics centers, quite prominent there. And also the BBRIU, the, the railway project um, linked to, um, uh, what's that called? Serbia, sorry. Um, then another one is in Greece, is a ports investment that is more focused on Perea's Costco investment there. It's going to be quite uh, significant in, in, in terms of this. So it really depends on the context of the different countries. They are the role of the um, host country society and the country to, to manage and shape the foreign direct investment, including Chinese investment there. I guess it's partially answered the question. And the third question, is it possible to refine it? I didn't get <laughs> That's very difficult to answer. <laughs> it's no um, black and white picture. It really depends. Um, if I'm a frame into like whether Chinese investment bring uh, like lead to this kind of um, 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 economic transformation in African continents, it really depends because, as I mentioned, it's really relational. It partially Chinese going uh, investment going out partially because it's domestic. Um, sometimes the challenges they encounter for the overcapacity, the structure transformation, and for light industry, for instance, they have to upgrade. And the certain kind of firms, they might encounter that environment um, standards have been restrained, especially along the coastal areas. That's why they're going out. 
but partially it's also dependent on the host country how they perceive managers those investment for instance in ethiopia at the very beginning they have a first wave of chinese investment focused on low end um, low uh, low end products focused on for instance uh, plastic sleepers or those kind of low end t-shirts uh, textile manufacturing so they seek the profit in ethiopia domestic market and focus on there but by um, 2015 onwards, Ethiopian um, they also um, changed their regulation to enforce those Chinese existing investor to force them to um, um, export market. Otherwise, they won't be able to get U.S. dollar to fueling that um, uh, manufacturing. In order to do so, um, some of them have to manufacture and focus on explore the um, U.S. market and European market. And some of them withdraw from the Ethiopian country. So it is uh, quite relational in this sense. So it's really depend on the context. While in Angola, we see quite different picture where translocal firm, where I mean is um, some of Chinese firms, of not only Chinese, but actually, um, they register with a domestic name in Portuguese or in Angola uh, language. Um, you won't be able to identify they are Chinese unless you physically see those. And those are firms they can engage with different kind of industry uh, that can um, be very profitable on the ground. That partially because the host country context, because Angola allows them to do so. It's not like Ethiopia is very strict in, in foreign investment, um, at least before the COVID time. Yeah. Anything else you want to add? <laughs> sure. Um, I mean, maybe maybe coming on to the the no strings attached. Right? I think the the, the kind of the host country context is extremely important when we're looking at the, the impact or the actual success or the, the governance or the social, the ESG compliance of a Chinese project. But, but it is true that overall, um, Chinese banks have a, a lighter load when it comes to the, the bureaucratic side of things, right? Um, you know, <laughs> something that struck me in, in speaking to, uh, to, to a, a World Bank uh, employee was that you know these days um, you don't just have to take into account the ESG requirements of a project. It's not just environment. It's not just social. You also have to take into account uh, human rights issues, uh, gender, right, as another requirement, and now increasingly climate alignment. So something that used to be a 50-page document in terms of the assessments you have to do is now 100 pages. And this is a this is a huge process and a workload, not just for um, the staff of the financing institution, but also for, imagine a very, very strange ministry of finance in a low-income country where you are a very poorly paid civil servant and you may not have the capacity or the expertise to deal with a lot of this. And so this is something where the lighter load of a Chinese loan is actually quite an attractive thing. Um, and then most importantly, I think, as I mentioned, Speed is a huge attraction. So in some cases, uh, in, in certain countries, you may have um, a project that has, a, uh, that has alternative competing offers. Um, and even when a Chinese loan, when it's not a concessional loan or a preferential export buyer's credit, you know, generally they are on commercial rates. But you may be willing to pay that as a sovereign government because you are looking at your political timeline. If you have an election coming up in four years, and you know that Exim Bank loan will come through in two years, and you could potentially get that bridge built within that lifespan in time for your next campaign, that makes Chinese finance a lot more attractive than you know waiting six years for the European Union to get its act together 
and finally uh, approve that that project right so so i think this is this is one aspect of saying no strings attached is sometimes can have good um effects or, or, or good kind of co-benefit to it. But I think that is also changing, and, and I think that Chinese banks uh, you know, are also learning and, and, and becoming a bit more disciplined and a bit more sophisticated in how they operate overseas. Because ultimately, I think they recognize that, that the World Bank and MDBs, with their many, many decades of experience, are very good at doing good projects that are more sustainable in the long term. And if they are more environmentally and socially sustainable, they're probably more likely to be financially viable uh, and generate the returns that they're meant to. Um, and so, you know, I think we are seeing patterns of uh, learning from um, uh, what one example is that, you know, AIB and, and China Exim Bank are now cooperating very much on this exact topic on, on how to um, improve and indigenize standards around ESG compliance. So, you know, I, I, think, I think that the landscape is changing and there is a bit more of a, a recognition of, uh, of the value of having some strings. Um, and then just on the question on uh, regional differences, I mean, even China's activity within Africa is, is not monolithic and there's a lot of diversity in how China behaves in different African countries. But on the whole, just drawing a broad brushstroke, uh, there are certain distinctive features of China's relationship with, with Africa as a whole. Um, there are a lot more kind of historical narratives around China's engagement with Africa that, that go back to the sort of South-South solidarity of the 1960s, the Bandung Conference, uh, even the, the, the sort of story of Zheng He taking his voyage all back in the 14th century to Kenya. And there are these like long-standing narratives of China-Africa friendship, which China has very much deployed to its strategic advantage uh, in its relations with African countries. The other aspect is that I think China's relationship with Africa is perhaps the most regionally institutionalized. And you have that with the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, which takes place every three years. Um, and so China, I think Africa was a sort of early experiment in China's going out, and it is in its relationship with, with different developing regions or, or regions of the global south. And, and it has been the kind of learning space for how it engages with, with other regions of the world as well. But it, 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 it does remain, I think, the most institutionalized, um, primarily through FOCAC, um, and the one where you have, I think, the most consistent kind of political relationships, right? in terms of UN votes, for example, uh, African votes in alignment with China's interests in the UN General Assembly um, is, is a very uh, important factor as to why China wants to cultivate these relationships with African countries. Excellent. Um, should we take another round of questions? Um, OK, great. So um, let's take three questions at once. Oh, yeah, the ones upstairs. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, should we start with the lady in the middle? The Hello, thank you for this wonderful presentation. Um, so I, earlier this year I was in South Africa and when I talked to people, many of them seemed very unhappy or even antagonistic towards Chinese investment, even more so than compared to Western investment. And so why do you think in terms of people to people relations, 
this is, and do you think this will change in the coming years? Um, any more questions? Um, The you can start, and then the person at the back. Maybe use the microphone. Okay, thank you for your presentation. And I have uh, uh, two questions related to the uh, public and private partnership uh, in this topic. And uh, Professor Jim mentioned that the increase of the public and private partnership is re uh, cooperation is required. So I wonder like, uh, if there are any transnational public-private partnership on the BRI, and if it's, uh, what is the shared value and shared risk in this kind of project, and how could we balance the shared value and shared risk? The second question is that, um, as uh, you mentioned that the importance of involving the private sectors in rulemaking pro process, I just wonder in what way can private sectors participate in the rule and regulation making process and why it's important to involve them in this process? Um, thank you so much for your presentations. My question is about the participation of China in the um, common framework and whether you think this reflects uh, maybe a shift in value, whether that be on the Chinese side to adopt more Paris Club approach to dealing with uh, non-payment or vice versa. Thank you. Um, yeah, maybe a fourth question. Uh, thank you so much for the presentations. Uh, my question is a bit technical. Um, as I was getting into China-Africa development finance, one of the mm -hmm. biggest challenges is to distinguish like the different varieties of development finance as to we have mentioned like different varieties of capital. And, and I wonder what is the, the varieties that we need to pay most attention to and how to distinguish them when, when we are looking at the data because they can be quite confusing at times, especially when they're compared to different uh, actors, different, um, uh, yeah, um, that's my question, yeah, thank you. Great. Yunan, do you want to start? Sure, uh, maybe I'll go in reverse on the, yeah. on the disaggregating different loans. I mean, uh, I know the diagram was a bit of a sprawl, but, but you can see the kind of the biggest types of loans uh, in that, and you know, you have the ones that are technically aid, which includes zero interest loans, this is tiny. Right? It's, it's really quite pitiful. Um, and so when, you when China talks about, oh, we canceled all of these loans, they talk about zero interest loans, which is less than 5% of the total portfolio. A bigger chunk are concessional loans, which come from China Exim Bank. And these are the ones that will be generally around 2% interest rate. Uh, and, and these are what China calls concessional, right? Uh, China doesn't follow OECD DAC measurements of, of concessionality or, or their discount rates. So if you apply uh, Western or OECD frameworks um, to, to Chinese lending, you it, it ends up being a little bit more fuzzy, but within China's delineation, concessional loans are aid and everything else is not. Um, the, the biggest, uh, the, the primary kind of loans from China Exim Bank are the preferential export buyers credit and the export buyers credit. Those are the ones that you see that constitute the sovereign 
loans to, to governments and to parastatal. And from CDB, there's a, there's a bigger kind of variety of, of um, loans that they offer. But all of these, the latter few, these are the commercial loans. They have a LIBOR plus some number of basis points. Um, they are commercially oriented. They generally fund projects that are supposed to deliver some kind of economic return or some kind of stream of revenue to, um, uh, uh, to, the, to the project owner. Um, and they are not aid. They are not motivated by any kind of uh, altruism. Um, and they are the ones that were, in the previous decade, considered very, very cheap, and now in this current interest rate environment now becoming a lot more problematic. Um, on, and uh, coming to the question on debt and China and the common framework, uh, so, so China joined the G20 DSSI, and this was actually a pretty big moment. It's the first time that, that it participated in a multilateral uh, debt restructuring framework of any kind. It's, it, China has historically uh, refused to join the Paris Club. It didn't see itself as a creditor country. It, it, it sees itself still as a developing country um, and, and, and so has resisted kind of joining these established rich world frameworks, right? But, but it joined the DSSI, and this was, this was quite a momentous occasion. Um, it was something that I think can be explained by some political economy factors of people within the Ministry of Finance who, who wanted to, I think, present a bit more of an international face or to show China as a responsible stakeholder to the world. So I think there were some genuine um, internationalist drivers behind that. Uh, what's happened in the in the kind of interim is that China did join the DSSI, expecting that uh, others would also take part, primarily bondholders, private sector creditors, and MDBs, and those did not. Um, and so there was this kind of sense of, well, we played ball. We uh, China ended up being one of the biggest kind of contributors to the debt relief under the DSSI, but but there was a sense that uh, we played ball, but but the other guys didn't. Um, just to say overall, the, the amount of debt treatment under the DSSI was still pretty paltry compared to the actual need. But, um, but it was this kind of you know, positive political moment that, that in the end didn't work out the way that, that the stakeholders wanted it to. The common framework was designed to remedy a lot of the um, weaknesses of the DSSI, which is the lack of private sector participation. Uh, and and hopefully to also bring in the MDBs, but but the MDBs have have resisted joining any kind of multilateral um, debt restructuring treatment. Um, that is, I won't get into it, but that also that is also because MDBs kind of stand aside with their preferred creditor status as a slightly different kind of creditor, and they want to maintain that. Um, but I think what's important for China is that they they want. There's a perception of fairness, right? They, they want to, to take part, but they don't want to uh, take on more than their fair share of, uh, of, of the debt restructuring that needs to take place or of the debt relief that needs to take place. And they want uh, Western private creditors who they perceive as ultimately, you know, based in London, in New York, in the global north, as also taking their fair share. Um, and this has led to a very, very politicized often very geopoliticized in the wake of US-China um, tensions and a very, very prolonged process because ultimately you're, coming, you're, you're trying to develop a completely new kind of framework for something that makes everyone happy, that tries to bring in private sector bondholders, 
that tries to ensure comparability of treatment between all of these kinds of creditors. Uh, and, and based on a document that's, I think, less than five pages. Right? That, this, that is how long the, the common framework document is. Um, I, I guess I've, I probably don't have time to get too far into this, but, but um, yeah, I'll stop there. It's, it's, a very, it's going to be a very prolonged process, and uh, ultimately the pain is borne by, by the borrowing countries. Um, yeah, um, back to the first question, why mm -hmm. um, your, your, your friend or someone you met in South Africa not happy? Well, it's, have, it's very difficult, right? But mm -hmm. I think I can frame in the way that how to deal with the matter of subjectivity. So because you talk about BRI, you get 100 answers to how they reflect about BRI. And the, so how you assess about the impact of, for instance, Chinese investment in African countries it really depends on the context. Um, give you a story that I encountered in Ethiopia. Um, this is from the interviewee from the Eastern Industry Park who owned by a private Chinese investor. Um, he told us that, okay, um, some one Western journalist tried to interview them and they didn't want to because they were fear about they have something negatively only explode without telling them. Um, but then, um, the, instead of interviewing the workers or working for the industry park, uh, this journalist interviewed uh, one of the un unemployed male outside the industry park, which can be uh, potentially a little bit biased about the, the, the particular event about what's the impact of eastern industry park. That can be biased in that sense because he only selectively um, pick one side of the picture without looking about, oh, what about the workers in the industry park, Zoom, uh, Eastern industry park? What about the supervisors there? Um, so I think it really depends on the person's own experience and what kind of perception it generated. For instance, as I always say, that if you only solely rely on the, uh, the media, sometimes it can be dangerous because you don't know what's really happening on the ground. And one, another issue is about the complexity of the, the unhappiness. Uh, one ex story is from Angola, we identify in our findings, we find that Chinese construction company in general pay lower than Portuguese and Brazilian company. Then we identify why it's the case, because if this can generate some of the negative part, oh, Chinese pay lower. But in reality, is that because those companies, those projects, railway, uh, road, road projects, they are in remote area. And those workers from the different states, so Chinese company provide accommodation, living cost, and provide uh, transportation to them. And eventually, um, when you look about how much they save monthly to send back to their hometown, they, they have higher, um, they generate higher um, beep, um, that kind of way of saving than those working in a Portuguese company. Partially because those companies concentrate on road projects near the capital city of Luanda, um, of Luanda. And the living cost is far higher than those remote areas. And plus, the uh, Portuguese companies, they don't provide accommodation and the living costs. So when you compare to have a holistic picture, then you know why it's lower. And then you can generate why the happiness and unhappiness, you, you have your own insights on that. So it's, um, I think as a researcher or a student that want to research about Chinese investment in Africa, 
we have to be aware of our positionality and identity. So what kind of background you have to position yourself in the field. For instance, for myself, I'm, uh, I was born in Shanghai and had education in Shanghai, then started master's degree at SOS and a PhD at SOS. So my background with my father used to work for uh, SOE and then have some of uh, this helped me to position myself to engage with Chinese community and the Chinese firm when I um, interview them on the f uh, in the field, which is my, my um, advantage. But meanwhile, I might be too close to the Chinese side and ignore or neglect some, some of the voices from other side, which are the host countries, community or society. So in, in order to mitigate the kind of potential buyers, I have to, um, to be closer to, for instance, the local workers. That's why I was spending whole year in Ethiopia, st uh, staying together with those local workers in the Eastern Industry Park and uh, stay in the container and uh, be together with the local workers and Chinese workers, which can be quite different to Chinese management level. So this helps you to um, evolve your um, um, uh, con con uh, knowledge about what's really going on and observe with the triangulating the data what's really happening. I think it will be helpful for you. Maybe, um, yeah, like that, that was a very interesting question. Uh, I remember that the Afrobarometer has actually a survey on that, actually uh, asking uh, people in different African countries about their satisfaction with Chinese investments. And it's interesting to see that. Uh, I remember when looking at it, there is a correlation between, like actually the countries which had most Chinese investments uh, expressed most dissatisfaction with uh, China's presence. But then when you look at the disaggregated data, it very much depends on the sectors in which like China is uh, playing a, a big role. So I think it's, it's interesting to look at this type of data. I'm abusing my role as a moderator here. Uh, I just wanted to add maybe just a little point on the question about the difference between Africa and the Middle East and China's presence. Uh, I think it depends very much on like the sophistication and diversification of the economy. Because when you look at like maybe China's engagement in Iraq in post-construction effort, it's very similar to China's like work in some parts of uh, war torn Ethiopia, for instance. And like a lot of Chinese construction firms have got quite lucrative contracts in like reconstruction efforts. It's the same in Libya, actually, where Chinese firms are rebuilding some major infrastructure uh, in the country. I think the major difference, and Yunnan is completely right to say that like uh, China's engagement with Africa maybe is like dates back to, you know, the non-alignment movement and all of that. But since the BRI, we've seen renewed interest of China in the Middle East and North Africa because of its strategic position. Uh, and what we see, especially in capital-rich Middle Eastern countries, lots of high-level contracts in the digital sector. So in AI, when you look at the UAE, Saudi, to some extent, like, Egypt and like the North African countries, there's some high-level contracts being signed in the digital sector. And, and the interesting thing, I would say maybe, there are different types of Chinese firms engaging with these capital-rich countries compared to maybe poorer and capital-scarce uh, African countries. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna stop here. More questions? Is this a question, James? Okay, so, <laughs> microphone, please. <laughs> Hi, I'm, I'm always up there and I don't get to ask any questions, <laughs> so I'm taking advantage. Um, um, 
Wait, wait, this work that you and Carlos Oya have done is really interesting, and I, you know the work of Yue Jo Young here, Young Yue Jo, um, showing the, the variety of investors. And I'm just following up a little bit on this um, uh, as my first question. And I said, there are a lot of small investors, almost family businessmen and businesses operating in Africa. I'm wondering if you've gotten any idea of the scale of that, because out of perception going around to various places, we see a lot, you know, an increasing role of small Chinese businesses making their fortunes in this, you know, still land of great opportunity for somebody who wants to take risks. Yeah. So that that's one part of this, but the second part follows on this other kind of controversial sort of question, and that's, it, do you have any perception of how much training Chinese state is doing for investors uh, and Chinese going into Africa? Because as we traveled around doing different research in different countries, we really saw very bad behavior on the part of Chinese, very racist behavior. And it's not often talked about, and I have raised it in China and a number of times, know about the kind of you know recognition of this there is because this is really important in the strategic longer term the the second question I had is that Ethiopia is rolling back industrial policy it's unraveling in a great way so I'm wondering if you have any perception of whether the Chinese investment that's in Ethiopia is going to continue reproduce itself or you'll see it drawn down now in this retreat. And if I can be real, <laughs> I want to ask uh -huh. you a question about China. Mm -hmm. And that's it. There's still a lot of unequal development in China itself, territorially and to its own peripheries. Um, and I'm just wondering what your own take is on the, the continued investment in internal economic integration right up to, to China's borders because there's still a great deal um, that would need to be done in China. So it's not just about boosting demand with, you know, um, with, with money for consumption of existing sort of middle class and permanently employed people in China, but it's the investment at the extremities and the frontiers of China. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much for your wonderful presentations. I feel like our students have really benefited from you all, so thank you. Um, I wanted to ask a kind of broader question. Um, I can't remember uh, who brought up Lee's book about global China. I wonder if, if I can ask the, all, all of the speakers to talk a little bit about how this idea of global China might be also uh, applied to other countries that uh, invest in, in Africa and elsewhere, global the US, global <laughs> Europe. What does China's and the approach that we take to studying China, what can we learn more broadly about development and the kind of global context, the relationships between what's happening in high income countries or capital rich countries and capital scarce countries? Thanks.
thank you. Um, I wanted to just ask you a question about um, Chinese investment that comes in and how it relates to or whether there's any relationship with um, an increase in corruption in uh, or how it I how it interacts with corruption in um, African states and what that does in terms of um, both impacts on the projects but also impacts on the citizens of those countries. Um, and I guess a broader question, and not in comparison to like Western investments, but just I I as a standalone sort of thing. And I guess a broader connection to um, a lot of the projects that are implemented. Um, when when we're talking about development or like implementation of these projects, are they uh, mostly in line with um, like agendas of the elites of that country, or is it going to more broadly like? So I think these are just some questions, especially considering there aren't so many strings, as we say, or like um, social and human rights sort of uh, requirements. I'm sure yeah, I'll start with James question. Um, of course, look, you know, if you look at the eastern provinces, Beijing, Shanghai, Shenzhen, so forth, it's like a rich country, right? It's South Korea levels. And what's dragging China down is the geographical disparity, which I would say is the most uh, highest source of inequality in China rather than within cities or, you know, in, in, like in other countries. Um, so uh, that, of course, is the focus. Um, but, you know, uh, the cyclical factors are really important. You know, if you don't take care of the short run, it might well be a long run problem, which is why. I'm for the demand kind of stimulus to get it out the cycle. But uh, in any case, um, real estate has been the biggest drag on the Chinese economy currently. And um, all the negative investment uh, in China growth is coming from real estate. So uh, uh, to your question, uh, the way the Chinese government plans to address this going forward is to rapidly expand affordable housing and uh, do what we call like village you know, um, reform. It's not easy to <laughs> pronounce in Chinese. Anyways, um, so that amounts to potentially trillions of our, our RMB next year, which means you know, increasing investment growth by 5% on the order of that. And so that would go towards more reducing inequality and more opportunities for the middle income. There's some all the other projects where you're, you know, attempting to move some of the renewable or new energy sectors into the inland areas, which I think is a very good idea. That will jumpstart development there. Um, but of course, this will take time. Uh, we can't uh, underestimate the endogeneity behind um, endogenous factors behind, you know, these economic conditions are often, uh, often not good, and when you put these things there, is it going to be very successful? There was a very interesting study that showed policies rolled around China had very, very different impact, the same policies. And the ones that are more economically productive and efficient um, had more successful programs as opposed to others. So there's some endogenous factors that you should also uh, take into account. So, and then, and then, of course, I think one of the causes of big de geographical disparity is the hukou system. The, the, the absence of internal migration flows, less than 5% of the population move across provinces, which is significantly lower than other countries such as India and others. And there are also a lot of internal trade barriers 
Um, and these taken together, according to some studies, suggest that if you get rid of them, that uh, raises productivity significantly because these are the big barriers. So yes, I think these are a lot of things to be done. And then when you talk about 900 million people still living under $300 a month, you think that there's a lot of potential. But I, I guess that you know when we always talk about longer term structural policies but not focus on the short term, you could potentially get into an economic trap that I think will hamper some of these longer term policies. So some of that is, is happening. But um, And then on, I guess on global China, uh, yeah, it would be very interesting because I think the, the idea of Belt and Road is to, to put forth a new global paradigm that's neither just trade and financial flows and trade and goods, right? Uh, those were the two engines of globalization. It was a new model of connectivity, whether it's physical infrastructure or digital, um, so that countries can work, be more, even more integrated uh, and to export not just goods and capital, but expertise and, and things like that. So I think that was a good idea. And I, I, I say, I think that we underestimate, well, we don't acknowledge enough some of these, these benefits. We often focus on negative news because newspapers don't sell with positive news. So it's always tend to be negative. Um, but, but that was the idea. But I think a lot of the implementation has problematic. And as James, you mentioned, the behavioral elements. And I'm not an expert in this. Maybe you have talked to the SOEs, but my impression that it has also been a learning curve. You know, the fact that European powers have been in, on the continent for a few centuries, they understand the cultural nuances and, and uh, you know, inter how to interact with locals much better than, than a novice. I don't want to point to wolf warrior movies as like a reference point for some <laughs> of these, you know, but, but the recognition that this, is, um, this has, has to improve, I, I believe it is, is partly there. I'm not sure there's enough training going on. Um, but on, on the global China aspect, I think so. So coming back to that question, um, what's the next, next big thing? And I think a lot of it is going to be technology, but technology embedded in business models and uh, services or products. Now, despite the huge tensions between US and China, I don't think that American people realize this, but four out of the five most downloaded apps today in the US are Chinese. I mean, that is very ironic, I have to say. Um, uh, but, but with um, countries that are less geopolitically tense, such as in the global south, the penetration of a lot of these low-cost, high-quality uh, you know, uh, products and services afforded to them, afforded to them is, is, a, is a huge benefit. And uh, China has new business models that are kind of the best in the world, really at the frontier, not to mention EVs and renewables and all that. I think all of that will penetrate the global south, especially since that there's no resistance to Chinese companies from a geopolitical standpoint, whereas it will be much more difficult to get into European American markets because of geopolitical reasons. So I'm not sure global China can really be global north, uh, uh, also be in the, in the global north um, for these, uh, these reasons that are not uh, economic. Let me, let me pass on. Okay, uh, I try to answer that third question first. And in terms of corruption, how to deal with this? Well, the first thing, um, actually, we did some reading recently about the uh, Chinese, uh, the role of intermediate agency, uh, taxi networks, Ch Chinese Guanxi networks, to what extent they're different to Western idea of the networks. Um, I think important thing firstly is how to define corruption because corruption in the UK context can be corruption has been legitimized but in China it can be mean different things so how you define um, corruption is important 
And also one book, I think, from, article from Yuan Yuan An, um, also identify different type of corruption in China. And certain type of corruption not necessarily lead to um, bad consequence in terms of economic development because those kind of corruption to her is transactional. It helped to facilitate um, certain kind of uh, regional local development into China, in China. But in African context where generally the institutional context regulation has been quite weak, um, so what really happened is not about rely on the institutional context. It's really dependent on the actual deal made on the ground, like how you made a deal with uh, one of the key decision making, one of the um, um, policy maker in Angola, for instance, because I have, uh, from our research, we identified actually sometimes Chinese firms, not only Chinese firms, but Chinese firms use that kind of testing network like uh, the relatives or friends of the uh, the key policymaker and suspend them to educated in, in education in China or whatever are working for their company to facilitate this kind of thing. So what is important here is not to um, look about corruption, but it's like how this kind of actual deal made, the process of it, and who was the one to help them and how, to, how it helped. I think this is more important to look about those kind of testing network. I'm also exposed this in the UK case right now. Um, yeah, will be better to share later on in the publication. <laughs> um, the, back to the global China, the concept has been um, called by uh, Professor Qinquan Li um, to call China beyond the um, geograph uh, geographical territory. But uh, what we really understand that the concept of global China is put global China as the uh, integrated unit of analysts into the global development. So the rise of China globally in the form of foreign direct investment trade or the foreign like immigration or the, the export of the China standards, what that mean to the, uh, the world economy? What that mean to the remaining of uh, the, the others? So what we need to understand is put them together and as I, um, our team has called to productively engage with global China with, and, and together with global development. And I think the, it's interesting to look about different capital emerge from those em, um, emerging economies. Because when sometimes we think, oh, what about China compared to global capital um, in Europe, in UK, in Germany? And sometimes people forgot when they talk about we are the like UK company, but this sometimes they, they already forgot themselves are global capital. So it's very important um, with the idea about what does a global China mean. And in one paper um, I, I did present uh, two weeks ago at LCE, uh, chaired by Yue Zhou Yang, and is called for more um, theoretical, uh, to work really on the theoretical foundation of the concept of global China to engage with global development. This is what we, um, me and the Professor Giles Mohan, our team has been recently uh, really focusing on. And I think in next year's DSA conference uh, at SOAS, um, we will have a panel particular focus on global China and the engage with global development, how to recenter global development with idea, for instance, with the global China. And back to, if I don't forget, uh, yeah, Jens, your questions. Um, yeah, it's, I, ha I try to be concise, but uh, because with this, question I have hours to answer. <laughs> um, so really depend on, I think, uh, the small media enterprise really depend on the sector 
and also the different country contexts. For instance, in Angola, what we identify as small media enterprises, more focused on different diversified sector because uh, Angolan host countries, they didn't really restrict about those kind of industry. Um, well, in Ethiopia, it's more focused on light manufacturing sector and the building material sector, which has been aligned with their um, industrial policy of um, export-oriented made in Ethiopia, and also the industrial um, development since 2004 onwards. So this can be quite different. And uh, um, interestingly, we also identify in Angola, actually, they have more translocals, where in Ethiopia, um, they have more small, medium enterprises firms. We, I, uh, in my PhD thesis, we identify like in terms of capital, comparatively comp capital intensive firms in um, um, light manufacturing, the building material sectors are more from Jiangsu province, where um, those kind of family owned, those, those kind of owner operated firms are more concentrated from uh, Zhejiang province. In terms of the number of uh, Chinese firms, this, Zhejiang ranked number one. But in terms of the capital uh, and, and the number of employment, Jiangsu ranked number one. And in terms of the export-oriented firms, Huajian, uh, the manufacturing uh, shoe manufacturing firm, ranked number one because in terms of its um, export-oriented to, to US market, but it has its political commitment somehow as well. So it's quite exceptional to that case. Um, then uh, the second question, um, what's that? Oh, OK. Um, I think for the consequence of Ethiopia's uh, Chinese investment in Ethiopia, particularly in manufacturing in, um, since in recent years, actually, uh, I'm a bit um, sad about that. <laughs> but it has, they have a different kind of factors that why some of the Chinese firms withdraw, et cetera, from private sector, partially because of the um, ongoing civil war and the, the domestic policy has been intrigued for a long time in Ethiopia. Um, this has been concerned, especially in different regions. Certain regions has more um, conse uh, negative consequence and the force those firms have to withdraw. Um, but also a coincident with the outbreak of COVID-19 and also the, um, the withdrawal of AGOA, this has a huge impact on um, export-oriented firms because without this, um, they, they can't export to the US market. But in our research, especially we update the data up to 2000, uh, May 2023, we also show actually Chinese private firms also quite resilient in terms of this kind of shifting condition. Because instead of um, many um, firms still there, because of the, uh, the Ethiopian government also um, be flexible, adapted to this kind of condition and let those firms previously focus on export to product in domestic market. This is a temporary um, um, strategy, but in order to attract more Chinese investment and the focus more on their long-term industrialization, um, I think the Ethiopian government has to commit it to their investment to shape those investments to um, be more uh, qualitative, uh, to be high, focused on high end. Also, um, yeah, that, that's what I think. Did I answer the question? Yeah. yeah, I think I have, we'll have I more forgot time something. Like yeah. Google for free. Okay. Do you want to add a final Sure, point? just a, mm -hmm. a couple, couple of quick points. I mean, one on the on the question around projects uh, and hinting at issues of corruption. I think 
you have to look at the kind of incentive structures at play for a lot of Chinese contractors who go out um, to Africa and global south countries. They're there to make money and they want to win contracts. Helpfully, they have uh, state-owned financial institutions whose mandate is also to help them make money and to sell Chinese goods, services, and, and technologies overseas. So, so this is kind of what I was trying to get at in the discussion on moral hazard. Um, in a lot of these infrastructure projects, in many cases, they're, they're led by the contractor, right? It's an SOE who goes, they build up a good relationship or a rapport with the Department of Transport or, or with a certain ministry or even with uh, at the presidential level. Um, and they, uh, and, and they, they try to fulfill the infrastructure wish lists of, of the host country. Um, and so th there's this kind of demand-led model, which, which I think contrasts the, the sort of OECD, MDB, Western um, development finance framework. Uh, you know, it's something that I think is good in many ways for the policy space, for the agency of host countries in Africa and elsewhere, um, but also comes with, um, as with some issues, and, and there's been studies by uh, researchers at ADATA, I think, where they, they find when you take an econometric analysis, you do find a slight predisposition of Chinese projects to be located in the birth regions of the political leader. So, you know, there are, there are also certain patterns that this gives way to. 